No, now you got me worried. I'm going to walk up here very carefully, I think, right? Don't hurt yourself, Gramps. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. We are part three of a three-part mini-series growing out of Matthew chapter 7 and verses 15 through 20 with regard to false prophets and false teachers in the church, the significant issue that that represents Particularly verse 15 where Jesus says here in Matthew 7, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing inwardly are ravenous wolves. We are going to finish uh, this morning. That's guaranteed unless the rapture comes first. And that would be okay as well. It would be better, wouldn't it? Yeah, you bet. You bet. This uh, past week I... Spent a little bit of time watching a video on YouTube. I don't do much of that, but I did this past week, and it was of a false teacher. It was about an hour and 20 minute or so a video. Several of us here and the staff watched that video together, and, and I walked away from that video with basically two overwhelming emotions. One is that I am sickened, and the other is that I am saddened. I am sickened by someone who would seek to deceive people so blatantly, who would make merchandise of the Word of God for their own profit and gain. I am saddened by the thousands, literally tens of thousands of people over an extended period of time who were brought in by this charlatan's deceptions and how their hopes were raised for certain things and then dashed in the aftermath of his collapse. It really was a very graphic uh, illustration of the things we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. We are here this morning, as I say, in part three of what's now become a three-part mini-series. And uh, there are seven characteristics that we have been looking at with regard to, to false prophets, false teachers, We've gotten through a number of them, and we're going to finish that this morning. Seven characteristics of the false prophet. We're looking at these things together and spending the time to look at them so that we are not to fall into their deadly embrace. We shouldn't think ourselves immune to such things, that somehow we are smarter than the average bear or that we are just spiritually superior to those who get deceived. It is a danger that is constantly at hand for all of us, and the Scriptures warns us about that. As uh, we have said several times, and uh, most clearly and in greatest length in the first section of this series, the first message in this series, that the false prophet of the Old Testament tends to merge a little bit into the false teacher of the New Testament. And so uh, the reasons for that we talked about in our first a message together. If you've missed any of the first two messages in the series, I direct you to our website. You can catch the video there and, and catch up on things. So uh, when we talk about false prophets, false teachers, we're going to use the terms somewhat interchangeably in the process here. So there are seven characteristics, and I'll just review them with you very, very quickly to get us to where we need to be in order to finish what we need to finish today. So there are seven characteristics. The first one is that the false prophet, the false teacher, is Christ-denying. We have said this for the last two weeks. This is the third week to say this. They are Christ-denying. That is, that they always deny Jesus in his person and his work. You can just go to the bank on that. The denial of Jesus in his person and in his work. They are Christ-denying. We saw, and I guess we'll just go ahead and do this. We'll review quickly a couple of scriptures Take a look at Acts 13. I'm going to move quickly. This is all review again. But Acts 13 in Paul's first missionary journey, beginning in verse 6, illustrates, I think, this characteristics of the Christ-denying nature of the false prophet, the false teacher. Acts chapter 13 in verse 6. 
When they, that is Paul and Barnabas, had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Bar-Jesus, Elimus, this false prophet, was seeking to disrupt the missionary journey, the, the, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Sergius Paulus. And Paul rebukes this false prophet and casts down upon him a judgment that results in his blindness. They are Christ-denying. That is, they, they are actively opposed to the person of Jesus Christ, and to the work of Christ. Secondly, they are deceptive. They are Christ-denying and they are deceptive. That is, they they are masters of disguise. They come not with an advertisement that says, false teacher, false prophet, this way, come, come hear something false, and just the opposite. They are proclaiming themselves to be the way of life. They are, to use Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, they are the broad way, they are the broad gate, they are the ones who appeal to the crowds that this is the way to heaven. They are deceptive. Jesus says in Matthew 7 and 15 that they dress like shepherds when indeed they are inwardly ravenous wolves. Paul says, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15, they're speaking of the false apostle that they disguise themselves as true apostles and no wonder he says because satan himself is disguises himself as an angel of light so there is this this uh, deceptive nature about them is that they come acting as if they are part of the church and uh, a leader and a teacher and a bible uh, preacher and so forth when in reality it is all a ruse it is all a deception it is all designed to take in the unsuspecting they are deceptive third they are devoid of virtue third characteristic they are devoid of virtue As we said last time, the scriptures repeatedly say that those who oppose God are living in open rebellion. They choose not his kingdom and his lordship over them and instead seek to establish their own kingdom and name themselves as Lord. That process inevitably leads to fleshly desires. The natural man has no ability to restrain his immorality. The flesh cannot restrain the flesh. Only the Spirit of God can restrain the flesh. And so it is only a matter of time before these Christ-denying, deceptive, false prophets, false teachers reveal the fact that they are devoid of virtue. Paul says in Romans 16 and verse 18 that they are literally slaves of their belly. They are driven by their bodily passions and their physical appetites. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. Check it on your own. Paul says there, they make merchandise of the Word of God. They peddle the Scriptures. They are in it for their own desires and what they can get out of it. They are devoid of Christian virtue. Fourth, they are devilish. They are devilish. What we mean by that is that the motivation behind the false prophet and the false teachers is satanic. It is the work of the evil one. Jesus makes that very clear in John chapter 8 and verse 44, where they're addressing the leadership of Israel, the Pharisees. He says, you are of your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil. We should not be deluded into thinking that those who are 
who are inspired and moved and motivated by the evil one are, are living in the greatest level of, of open wickedness possible. That's not necessarily true. The leaders of Israel were exceedingly religious. They were exceedingly fastidious in the practice of their religion. But they were, in the, in the deepest level of their being, motivated, Jesus says, by the evil one himself. What moved them, what motivated them, what, what animated them was Satan himself. And no clearer illustration of that could be found than they called for the, the unlawful execution of their own Messiah. And the deliverance of a murderer, Barabbas, in his place. They are moved of the devil. Fifth, they are dangerous. Because of those things that are true versus, or or excuse me, uh, the the fact that they are Christ-denying, that they are deceptive, that they are devoid of virtue, they are devilish, they are therefore dangerous. They are therefore dangerous. Jesus says they are like ravenous wolves. They are seeking to devour. They are looking to pick off the susceptible ones, the the outliers, those who are not within the protection of the sheepfold, those that sort of hang around on the edges of Christianity. They will pick them off. We looked at a number of passages last time to to sort of illustrate this. Uh, The one that I think... uh, does a great job with it now is is Isaiah chapter 30. I'll go ahead and turn you there to Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 10. Isaiah 30 and verse 10. Here this is Isaiah's indictment of the nation of Israel who has fallen into apostasy. They have turned from the God who has delivered them from from, uh, Egypt. And they say to the true prophets, or or to their prophets rather, the the false prophets, they say to the seers, verse 10, you must not see visions and the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right, but speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Now, what Isaiah is saying is that the people are under indictment here because they're saying to the prophets, don't tell us what God says, tell us what we want to hear. But that is characteristic of the false prophet. That is characteristic of the false teacher, is that they tell people what they want to hear. They, they prophesy, in the words of Isaiah here, pleasant words designed to comfort people in their sin rather than confront them in their sin. And call upon them to repent and turn back to the one true God. So the false prophet, the false teacher is exceedingly dangerous. And they are dangerous because they will tell you what you in your flesh want to hear. They will make it okay to live in a way that is dishonoring to God. They bring that dangerous message. Number six. They are detectable. And this is where we left off last week. They are detectable. They are Christ-denying. They are deceptive. They are devoid of virtue. They are devilish. They are dangerous. But praise the Lord, they are detectable. God gives us in His holy word the ability to smoke them out, to figure out who they are. And He gives us a number of tests. Last week we looked at the first two of them. Number, the first test was in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And there we said it was kind of a twofold test. We called it the miracles test and the loyalty test. Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5, the miracles and loyalty tests. And it was simply this, that those who come in the name of the Lord need to support that statement, that that. Uh, that that uh, um, authority that they presume to have by their ability to do supernatural works in God's name. That is, that God will, will move through them and enable them to do attesting signs and miracles. They need to be able to do signs and miracles. If they cannot do these things, then the people were told by Moses to just ignore them. Just ignore them. 
But that in and of itself is not proof that one comes from God. The absence of it would be proof that one does not come from God, but the ability to do those things is not definitive proof that you do come from God. There's a second part of the test here, and that is what we call the loyalty test. So they may do signs and wonders, and that's good, and they need to be able to, but the false prophet also needs to bring one to God. That is that their prophecy, their teaching must not draw people away from God, it must draw people to God. What they say must comport with that which the authorized spokesmen of God have previously revealed. Now, practically speaking, what that means is that the Scriptures, as they unfold, the revelation of God unfolds, it assumes everything that goes before and then builds upon it. It never contradicts that which goes before. It is always designed to draw us to God. We noted last week, that's why the New Testament is absolutely filled with Old Testament citations. If they could not cite the Old Testament in support of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it would be false. It would be false. But because it flows out of the revelation that has previously come, it is indeed true. That was the miracles and loyalty tests. Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 and 22, we call it the prediction test. There it is that, that their predictions must come true. If they claim to speak for God then the prediction must come true. They, they have to have the signs and wonders. They have, to, they have to speak in a way that points people to God. And if they make a prediction, the prediction has to come true. And the reason is very simply because God does not stutter. God is not confused about the future. God is not, uh, is not impotent. He has the power and strength and authority and ability to bring to pass His Word. So when they predict something, it has to come true. And if it does not come true, they are not a true prophet of God. We said last time the short-term predictions and the validity of the short-term prediction supports the long-term message. The long-term predictions are supported and certified by the short-term predictions that come true. You can see that illustrated, by the way, in Isaiah 7. We won't turn there. But you can see it in his prediction there of the, of the Messiah to come. It begins with a short-term prediction that does come true, followed by the long-term prediction of the incarnation of Christ. That takes us to Matthew 7 and new material. So, prop open those eyelids and let's go for it. Matthew 7, and believe it or not, we're actually going to treat the text now. Matthew 7, and beginning in, uh, well, I'll pick it up in verse 15, but really verses 16 to 20 is what we'll focus in on. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. I call this the genetics test or the fruit test, if you like. See, either you can call it the genetics test or you can call it the fruit test, whichever one you like. The basic idea here is that a tree only produces one kind of fruit. If it's a good tree, it produces good and edible fruit. If it is a rotten tree, it produces inedible fruit. Simple illustration of that, uh, many years ago now, we bought our home here more than two decades ago in Upland, and when we bought our home, we had a tangerine tree in the backyard. Now, some of you know about my my old tangerine tree. It made for many sermon illustrations, and it'll make for one more again this morning. This tangerine tree was big, it was green, and every year it was absolutely full of fruit. It had no problems producing tangerines. The problem was is that they were worthless tangerines. They were the most sour 
inedible, shrunken, miserable, wretched tangerines known to man. And what made them more wretched was the promise every year of an abundant harvest only to be disappointed with these horrible tangerines. We put up with it for many years, we watered it, we fertilized it, we did all of those things, and eventually we chopped it down and dug it out, because that's what needs to be done. And Jesus brings that sort of agricultural metaphor to play here, and he's, he basically says is that if it's a rotten tree, it's going to produce rotten fruit. If it's a good tree, it's going to produce good fruit. It's as simple as that, really. And a man is like a tree in his inner character. If his, if his inner character is good, then it will eventuate in good behaviors, good doctrine. If his inner character is evil, rotten, crooked, it will eventuate in deeds that are evil, rotten, and crooked, and teaching that is evil, rotten, and crooked. The mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart, so the fruit of a man's life reveals the inner man. That's the basic idea, is that you can, do, you can figure out who are the false prophets and who are the false teachers by evaluating their life and their doctrine. Now, in the context here of the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's quite interesting that the fruit that Jesus would, would be referring to here by, by first interpretation would be someone's adherence to the declaration that he is the coming king and his manifesto of his kingdom, that is the Sermon on the Mount. You would know if someone has good fruit if they adhere to Jesus as king and his exposition of the Old Testament here in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, that's the test. Do you agree with the I say to you part? Do you order your life in faith by the by grace of God according to the I say to you part? If you do, it's a good tree. If you don't, it is a bad tree. And that means that the scribes and the Pharisees represent here for Jesus in Matthew 7 the bad tree. They are the false prophets. They are the ravenous wolves that he is warning his people about. And it won't be much longer before these wolves show their teeth. It won't be much longer before the wolves show their teeth. And eventually they will arrange to have this man Jesus crucified. Crucified. Beloved, the false prophet, the false teacher seeks to hide, seeks to deceive, masquerades as, as one that is true, one that is genuine, one that is part of the people of God, one that, that points the path to everlasting life. But Jesus says they are the hucksters of the broad road. They are those that, that teach the broad gate. They can be religiously rigorous, but that doesn't make them right. Ultimately, their behavior will give them away. There's no hiding this. Notice, by the way, in verse 16 and verse 20, he says, fruits, plural. Fruits, plural. I think he does that because he's, he's sort of pointing to the reality that is, it is both your conduct and your doctrine that need to be evaluated. It is your character and your teaching that need to be sifted and evaluated to determine whether one is truly a true spokesman for God or a false spokesman for God. Now, sometimes the, the, the fruit of falsehood, which will always ultimately reveal itself, is not quick to discern. It may not lay readily on the surface. There are those, and, and certainly the video that I alluded to earlier here, uh, it was pretty obvious 30 seconds in what you're dealing with, but it's not always that way. Sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes it's, it's buried under some layers and it, and it takes time for the fruit to manifest itself. Not all trees fruit as quickly, do they? 
I was talking with someone here earlier before the service, and we we're talking about avocado trees. And, and avocado trees don't fruit immediately. It takes a while for the fruit to be produced. Well, that's true for the false prophet. It's true for the false teacher. Not all of their fruit is immediately apparent. Sometimes you have to wait a while. You have to watch. You have to examine. That's one of the reasons why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verses 22 and 24, a little parenthesis there in verse 23, that uh, Timothy needs to take his time with, with laying his hands on people, men, elevating men into positions of leadership and authority and responsibility in the church. It shouldn't be something you do quickly, Timothy. He says, do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin, Timothy. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Timothy, not every false teacher is is immediately apparent when you first shake their hand. When you first kind of look them in the eye and you give them that pastoral squint and, you know, try to look deep into their soul. Sometimes, you know, you need to get a little bit of time and let it, let the fruit start to come out. Be careful. Be careful. Because sometimes it, it drags along after them like a, like a ball and chain. But they are detectable. If not immediately, then in time, just pay attention. Seventh, they are doomed. Seventh, they are doomed. They are detectable. And they are doomed. It may appear that the false prophets, the false teachers are going to prevail. There have been times... Certainly in the, in the history of the church when it seemed as though the true gospel all but disappears. It's like a, like a fresh running stream that somehow goes underground and no longer flows on the surface. There have been some very dark periods. But ultimately, evil will not prevail and the minions of Satan will not prevail. Jesus assures us that the end is doom for those who are opposed to he and his kingdom. Verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thrown into the fire. In Matthew's gospel, and I won't take the time to trace it out with you, you can do it on your own, but in Matthew's gospel, fire is repeatedly used to speak of eternal punishment. It is a reference to eternal punishment. They will be eternally punished. And what we're told here in Revelation 19, I will turn you there, Revelation 19 and verse 20, into the lake of fire. Revelation 19 and verse 20, we are told that the beast, that is the Antichrist, was seized And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. That is the ultimate residing place of all those who are opposed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians makes that very clear. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and following. False prophets are heading to the fire. They are doomed. And so are those who follow them. So are those who follow them. Those who follow the false prophets, those who follow the false teachers all the way to the end, follow them all the way into eternity. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, Paul writes, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one, that's a reference to the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. 
That is the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Those who follow false prophets, false teachers, all the way to the end will join them in the lake of fire. It's a very sobering thought. Very sobering. Now throughout this series, it may have come to your minds now and again, wondering who are they? Come on, Pastor David, name them. Nope. I considered it. I considered it. The problem is I don't have time to to build the case, and I don't want to just start spilling out names. This is a heavy-duty accusation. So to just spill out a name without appropriate uh, support for that allegation, I don't want to do that. So if you're interested, here's what I'm going to do. I'm I'm going to refer you to a website. We'll put it up here for you. It's called www.christianfallacies.com. You go to that website. And there you will find names and you will find the documentation necessary to support the allegation with regard to those names. So if you're wondering who these people are, and they are out there, they are popular, many of them. You go to that website and you check it out. What is our defense, folks? What is our defense about those who falsely claim to speak for God? What defense does the church really have? I want to take some time here at the end, and I want to answer that question for you. The biblical church is provided provided for by God with, with two lines of defense. There are two lines of defense. The first line of defense is the competency of the elders. It is the competency of the elders. What do I mean by that? Let me take you to a couple of very commonly known and important passages with regard to the ministry of the elder. Take you first to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning in verse 2, Paul is giving instruction to Timothy, who is pastoring the church in Ephesus, with regard to the process of selecting elders. Verse 2, chapter 3, 1 Timothy, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and here's the little phrase, able to teach, able to teach. The elders must be able to use the Word of God. If one is able to teach the Word of God, then by necessity, one must be able to study the Word of God. They sort of go hand in hand. The elders are to be men of the Word. They are are to be men who are immersed in the Word of God, men who are competent in the Word of God, men who are able to utilize the sword of the Spirit to defend the flock of God. Paul makes it clear in Titus Chapter 1, speaking of the same situation, talking about elders again and giving Titus some direction on how to go about appointing elders. He says, Titus, verse 9, elders must be those holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. 
The elders must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. That is, they must be competent in the Word of God. This is the first line of defense, to protect the flock of God. We need elders who are men of the Word, men who are serious about the Scriptures, men who are willing to do the hard work of studying the Word of God and applying it in their own lives and and using it to shepherd the flock of God among them. It is the competency of the elders. First line of defense. But there is a second line of defense. The second line of defense is, is the maturity of the believers themselves. The maturity of the believers themselves. As the elders do their work, the, the congregation matures. It doesn't remain in the same place. It doesn't remain in the same spa- state of, of spiritual infancy. It, it grows. The people of God grow in their ability to handle the Word of God. How do we avoid the influence of false prophets and false teachers? We become intimately acquainted with the true voice of God. We know what God's real voice sounds like so that when we hear that which is a a cheap knockoff, we can identify it for the counterfeit that it really is. We have to know the voice of God when we hear it now, am I talking about something audible? Is it, is it something that's audible, or is it something that's just sort of impressed upon our heart or breathed in our ear? Is that what I'm talking about? Well, if you know me at all, you know that there's no way I'm saying that. This is where you will hear the voice of God. This is where God has written to you and to me. As you get familiar with this, as you become intimately acquainted with this, as you, as you learn what God has said, you will learn His voice. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says. You will find the voice of God in the Word of God. We need to be, we need to be trained. We need to be prepared. We need to be diligent in these things. So here's what I've got for us, just to finish out our time together. I have a short little outline. A short little outline of of some some areas where we need to be really nailed down certain with regard to the voice of God. And in particular, the voice of God as it speaks to the person and work of who? The Son of God. Remember I told you that that the, the first characteristic of the false prophet or the false teacher is they are what? Say it to me. Christ denying. They're Christ denying. That is where they will attack. And therefore, that is where we must be solid. We must be solid. We need to grow in many, many areas of doctrine. But this one needs to be nailed down tight. So let me give you a little outline, some things to think about. Jesus' person. Let's just start with that. The person of Jesus. Colossians 2.9, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. The person of Jesus Christ. We must be nailed down with regard to His deity. John chapter 10. Go ahead and flip over there. John 10. I've just tried to pick some verses here, some passages that are are really familiar or should be. John 10. Oh, some will come to you and say, well, you know, know, Jesus never really thought he was God. Oh, really? Evidently, you've never read John 10. John 10, beginning in verse 22, at that time the Feast of Dedication, that is Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. 
Jesus answered them, I I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Prophet. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No clearer declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ could be found, and it is found in his own words. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Jesus answered him, or excuse me, the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be who? God. They understood the claim. They understood the claim. We must have no uncertainty, not a shadow of a doubt, the deity of Jesus Christ. We also must have his humanity firmly in our grasp. We're good at defending his deity. I think sometimes we slip a little in his humanity. For that, I want to take you over to Luke 2. This might not be the passage that you would think of, But that's okay. When you get in your small groups, maybe you can spend some time and come up with other passages. Luke 2 is a passage that stands out to me when I want to to think about the the humanity of Jesus Christ. Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and who was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Go over to verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The humanity of Jesus Christ. Conceived in the womb of Mary, born into the world in a natural process of birth, just like you and I came into the world, circumcised on the eighth day as a, as a son of the covenant. He was as human as you or I. Absolutely, completely, totally, fully human in every single respect, yet without sin. And by the way, the sin nature is not what it means to be human. You know that, right? It's a foreign intruder. It's a foreign intruder. Jesus' person, firm on his deity, firm on his humanity. Secondly, Jesus' work. Jesus' work. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, among whom I am foremost of all. Why did Jesus come into the world? Jesus came into the world to what? Save sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That takes us to his atonement. His atonement. The means by which he saves sinners. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He that is God made him that is Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What Paul says is that he takes this whole gospel and he reduces it down to a simple statement of substitution. 
the substitutionary atonement. That is that Jesus Christ took upon himself, God laid on him the guilt and the sin of his people, and it was punished there at his cross. And all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ was transferred to his people. Substitutionary atonement. The other part of his work that we need to be firm on is his resurrection. We need to be firm on his resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. We need to be sure about his resurrection. You know, if he had only died... There would be no way you would ever know that God accepted his sacrifice. It is the resurrection that is God's exclamation point, God's stamp of approval, God's paid in full stamp, as it were. But it goes beyond that. Because it is the resurrection life that Jesus has that he gives to you and I. We receive it by faith. Not just that our sin and our guilt was transferred to him and punished there. It is not just that his righteousness was then credited to our account. It is that we share in the very life of God. The resurrection life. Eternal life. Beloved, read the book of Acts. There is not a single sermon in the book of Acts in which the resurrection is not a key component of apostolic preaching. It is the resurrection of Christ that is his triumph and by faith yours and mine. His work. Substitutionary atonement, bodily resurrection. Third, Jesus' lordship. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? We receive the gift of salvation, which is wrapped in the lordship of Jesus Christ by faith. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, I think, say it well. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Listen, the gift of salvation is wrapped in the lordship of Jesus Christ. They cannot be separated from each other. They cannot be divorced from each other. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior and reject His Lordship over you. It is a package. It is His Lordship that encompasses His redemption. The Lordship of Jesus Christ received by faith. And that Lordship calls us to suffer. It calls us to suffer and For this, we look at Romans 8, in a little section that's probably frequently overlooked. Romans 8, 16 and 17. Paul's writing there about how do we know we are the child of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That is the Holy Spirit of God impresses it upon our own spirit. We are the children of God. And if children, then heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him. So that we may also be glorified with Him. You notice that little phrase? If we suffer with Him. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 3 
and verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer what? Fill it in. Persecution. Persecution. We are called to suffer as our Savior has suffered. Not necessarily all the time. Not necessarily all people. But the general pattern of the Christian life is a life of suffering. That's hard for us. We're living in the bubble. For the most part, we have been insulated for a period of time. So the message of suffering is an unpopular message. It is particularly unpopular in American culture. This is one of the reasons the false teachers and the false prophets who pervade the airwaves do so well. Because their message is not a message of suffering. Their message is a message of prosperity, happiness, wealth accumulation. And yet Jesus says, listen, if they treat the master this way, what do you think they will do with his followers? We are called to suffer. A message that does not call us to suffer is not a gospel message. We need to be clear about that. That should not be negotiable. Suffering is not just for a few spiritual Christians somewhere. The providence of God, the bubble may soon end for us. We need to be prepared to suffer. The gospel calls us to suffer. It is part of the lordship of Christ. It is the willingness by faith to say no to the kingdom here in order to receive the kingdom to come. It is delayed gratification. And that is an unpopular message. Takes me to the fourth Jesus' person, Jesus' work, Jesus' lordship, fourth, Jesus' return. We need to have that nailed down too. Jesus' return. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Bodily. Bodily, he is coming back. He is returning again. Amen? And we need to be positive about that. That is not negotiable. He is returning again. And when he returns, there is a a sifting that will happen among humanity. The return of Jesus Christ brings about judgment. It brings about judgment. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. Listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks of these things. Speaking to the philosophers of Athens. He's preaching the gospel to them. Notice what he says, verses 30-31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God is declaring that all people everywhere should repent because Christ is going to return, and when he returns, there is a day of judgment. It is unavoidable. It is unavoidable. The return of Jesus Christ brings about judgment. And it also brings about kingdom. And for that, I'm going to turn you back into that Old Testament again, back to Zechariah. Zechariah. It's the end of the Old Testament, just prior to Malachi. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 9. 
The prophet writes, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. In that day. What day? The day of the return of the Lord. King over all the earth. Do you remember what Jesus taught His disciples to pray? Matthew 6. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray for the return of Christ. Pray for the establishment of His kingdom. You can pray with certainty knowing that He is coming again and no man knows the hour or the day. Christ is returning. We need to be sure about that. And we need to live our lives in light of that reality. Beloved, it's uh, not without some measure of noteworthiness that a good number of the New Testament letters or epistles are addressed to the church in general. Those that, that warn about false prophets, false teachers, for example, Jude and 2 Peter, are addressed to the church in general. Yes, we're reliant upon the competency of the elders and, and praise God and thank God that He has provided in this church some competent elders. But no one's off the hook. None of us are off the hook. We need to be like the Bereans, right? Acts 17. Paul comes down to Berea and he's, and he's preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the Bereans, they have their, their Scriptures open and they are searching the Scriptures, Luke tells us, to see whether these things are so. Who is this guy? Paul. And what is it he's talking about? And do the Holy Scriptures back him up? Let's find out. They were a noble people. May God grant us grace to be a noble people too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it in the English language. And thus, O oh Lord, there is no barrier for our ability to read it and comprehend it. I thank you, O oh Lord, for those among us who speak Spanish, for the word is available in the Spanish language too, and thus they also have direct access to the voice of God. Our Father, how many have gone before us and given their own blood to make the Scriptures available to us so freely and readily? What an incredible entrustment. What a credible privilege. What an incredible joy. And although the evil one has his minions, who would seek to infiltrate the church and tear it apart and, and destroy and savage the sheep, you have given us your word that we might stand firm. Oh, so, oh Lord, let us stand firm. We pray, our Father, for those among us here this morning, perhaps for the very first time, to whom a good bit of what we have said is brand new information. They haven't thought about the world this way before. Our Father, may your Spirit cause His Word, that which has been read and preached this morning, to resonate in their hearts to be united with faith, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would turn from their sin and their, their autonomy, their desire to be their own governor, that they would submit themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and trust in Him alone for their redemption. May you accomplish these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. If God has moved in your heart this morning through anything you have heard here 
or seen. We would like to talk with you after the service. Open the Word of God with you and show you how you may know that you have eternal life. God bless you.